how does it say we were soldiers once you know and uh, we were and uh, I think every one of us is damn proud of what we did. There's no shortage of pride in Gardner, Illinois, a town of 1400 on old Route 66, 60 miles southwest of Chicago. Gardner is Danny Anderson's hometown. He's lived his whole life there. In 1967, Danny was drafted and sent to a place far from the farm fields and strip mines of Grundy County. Danny was wounded in the rice paddies of Vietnam. Five other young men who were Danny's friends and fellow students at Gardner South Wilmington Braceville High School did not make it home from Vietnam. The cost of war had exacted great pain in this corner of small town America. I recently talked to Danny and two of his longtime friends who served in Vietnam, Earl Fatlin and Gary Cochis. Theirs are stories of brotherhood in the face of fear, dealing with a cunning enemy, snakes, a stalking tiger, 70-pound backpacks, and finding humor amidst the things they carried. We all shared part of an afternoon at the American Legion Hall not far from the high school they shared on Main Street in Gardner. Well, a lot of folks who grow up in small-town America move to bigger cities. Oh, yeah. But you didn't. You stayed here. You're a lifer in Gardner, Illinois. That's true. Why is that? Oh, family was here. My job was here. I worked for Peabody Coal, six miles out of town. I mean, uh, my dad worked there. He got me a job, and I stayed. I got married and married a gardener girl. To us, it was, uh, we did move one time to southern Illinois when Peabody closed here in 74. We moved back in 76 uh, when I got laid off down there. And uh, ComEd, this is where people from the south come for jobs. This is, this is where it's at, uh, if, you know, if you want to make a good living. So when Uncle Sam came calling... You, you were drafted, mm-hmm. and that was in 67? 67, June of 67. All right. well, what was the mood in Gardner in surrounding towns uh, with Vietnam going? and, and You know, in June of 67, uh, Vietnam was just something you watched on TV every night. Uh, there was really no, not a lot of discussion about it, and I, knew, I never knew anybody who refused to go. Were you concerned that you might end up headed for Vietnam? No. You know what? I always told my mother, I says, well, I'll tell you one thing. If I reach in the apple barrel, I'll get the rotten apple. So I guarantee you, if I get drafted, I'm going to Vietnam. And sure enough, that's what happened. Where were you when you were told you were going to Nam? I had basic training in uh, Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. Went to, on buses, they bussed us down to uh, Fort Polk, Louisiana. We got there, and they had a theater there called the Pelican Theater, and we had 800 people in there to a new training battalion, you know, to, for infantry training. And that colonel got up, and he didn't say hello or welcome to Fort Polk. He just said, in eight weeks, you will be going to Vietnam. You could have heard a pin drop in that place. Uh, it became a reality then. I mean, this, this is where you're going, boys. So. Did you call home and tell the, the folks this yeah, is where I'm going? Not. Not for a week or so. Yeah. Well, how did you process that? What were you thinking? Yeah, you never thought about it. Just, hey, you go where you're told, and that's what you do. 
If they'd have told me to go to Germany, believe me, I'd have got on that plane and went to Germany. Mm -hmm. They said, Vietnam, you go to Vietnam. So you're there in 68. What, when did you arrive in Vietnam? I arrived about June 16th or 17th. Okay. So the, Tet had happened. Tet had happened. I was still what they consider a replacement troop. Uh, the 9th Division, my division, got hit pretty hard. In fact, one of our Gardner boys, uh, Bobby Wright, he was in, he did basic and AIT with me. I was lucky, got chosen to go to NCO school in Fort uh, Benning, Georgia. Bobby went over there on November 28th. He went to B Company, 3rd Battalion, 39th Infantry, 9th Infantry Division. And uh, he got there November 28th, and he got killed on January the 8th, before Tet. When I got there in June, I went to the same exact company, same everything. Unbelievable how our past crossed all the way through service. Now, Bobby was one of the five, right? He was five, the first. The first of five the first of guys. Five graduates of Gardner South Wilmington Township High School that died in Vietnam. One of five. I was a... You're out in the field? What you call a grunt. In uh, Mekong Delta our, our, was our area, Plain of Reeds. Cambodia shows up. We, we went to the Plain of Reeds. I know we crossed the line a lot, but... Uh, the, uh, you did your job, you know what it was? A lot of work. Down there, you're in mud all the time. You just, it just, nothing is dry. Uh, rice patties after rice patties after rice patties. Your feet are wet, you're wet all the time. And uh, people, <laughs> I used to tell people, you pee and poop in the same water you're standing in. <laughs> That's what you do, because <laughs> there ain't nowhere else to go. And uh, it was a, it was a, a, quite an experience, and then you're always under the threat of booby traps. You get shot at. Yeah, I mean, it, it, we're the hunters. We're out there hunting, but they're, the what you're hunting is always, almost always gets first shot. Almost always get first shot, and then you react. You know what? You you get, I won't say used to it, but you uh, you're aware of it. You you know what the odds are. You see people go home. <laughs> wounded, you see him go home dead. Uh, it just, it, it becomes almost routine. In our company, it wasn't if you're going to get a Purple Heart, it's when you're going to get your Purple Heart, you know, and hope you survive it. And you got a Purple Heart. I did get a Purple Heart. Tell yes. me about that, that day. Uh, we, we'd been out all night, and uh, they had no choppers to move us, so we were walking to Highway 4. We had about 4,000 yards to go, all rice paddies. And uh, I had a new kid from New Mexico. I was a squad leader. He was a new kid, and uh, he wanted a walk point. He'd only been there about a month. So I said, all right, go ahead. We're just, you know, we're just beating feet across rice paddies. And uh, he got to that dike, and he didn't see it. And uh, he lived. He got tore up pretty bad. Kid off to the left from Guam, Manabuzin, he got one and caught it right in the cheek of his butt. Hit that main artery. He was the one we almost lost. And I was 10 yards back, like a good squad leader should be, and uh, I got one in the stomach, one in the front of the stomach, out the back of the stomach, lodged next to the spine. And uh, fortunately for me, uh, it didn't hit anything vital. It missed the main artery by just an eighth of an inch. It just, it just, God was with me that day, I'll tell you. Somebody was with me. They chappered you out then. Oh, yeah. 
the chopper came in. We loaded the other two guys up. We had them all bandaged. We threw all the gear on a chopper. I threw my gear in the chopper. I go to get on, and my captain, Captain Seneca, he says, where are you going? <laughs> I just raised my thing up, and there's a hole about the size of a half a dollar. And <laughs> he says, I didn't even know you were hurt because I was helping bandage. I threw the stuff on. We get to the hospital on the chopper, and the guys come running out with their stretchers. They take the two guys in, and the guy, the medic on the chopper says, hey, who's going to unload all this crap? Three rifles, three rucksacks, steel pots. So I unloaded all, hauling up to the back of the room. After you were wounded, you're yeah. unloading the chopper? <laughs> I was unloading the chopper. <laughs> and I'd haul it up, and I laid it all there. So I got it all up there. So I smoked, of course, like everybody did over there. So I lit up a cigarette, and I'm standing there having a cigarette. This nurse comes out and says, what are you doing here? I says, raise the shirt up. <laughs> Put that cigarette out and get in here. She says, we were only expecting two, because that's what they call for. They didn't know I was wounded. An hour later, I was in surgery, so that was the end of it. What did the surgeon say to you? Uh, the next day, he told me, that doctor come in there, and he said, uh, Sergeant Anderson, you are the luckiest, one of the luckiest individuals I've ever seen. It missed everything, just like it had eyes. Didn't hit any vital organs, no kidneys, no, you know, no lung. If it hits the lung, they call it a sucking chest wound. If you get a hole in your lung, you're going to die because uh, guess what? It's going to bleed. It's going to fill that lung up. And when it gets filled up there, it's going to bleed over into the other lung and do that. A month after I got wounded, I get a letter from my lieutenant. Tell me what the update and all that stuff. And Bill Christensen from Elgin, Illinois, he got hit with one piece of shrapnel just like I did. But his hit his lung. He bled to death before they could get him to the hospital. And he just tore his family up, I'll tell you. We just had that reunion yeah. down there in Savannah, yeah. and one kid just had a piece work out of his foot. He got wounded in August of 68, and yeah. that piece just worked out two months ago. <laughs> okay, wait a minute. Let me, let me it's just go. piece of shrapnel. You're, this is a reunion of the, the 9th Division. 9th Infantry, yes. And, and you just went on that recently. Right. And there's a Last guy week. there who was served with you, and he yep. had a piece of shrapnel in him, and it's just now, 50-some years 50 later? 50-some years later, working this piece of shrapnel worked its way out. Well, you talk about living with a wound for all that time, huh? Well, he almost lost a foot. Yeah. When we put him on the job, right, that foot was just dangling. And uh, he's very lucky they put them all back together again. And uh, he has trouble with it every once in a while. Weather changed, but he lives in Florida. He got out of Illinois. He said I'm, he was from Bloomington. Do you have any residual effect from the wound? No, I don't have any. Well, you are a fortunate no, I'm very lucky. Very lucky. <laughs> About six months in when you were six wounded, six then months. then where'd you go after that? Went to Japan first. They flew me to Japan uh, about eight days after. And that's where the doctor evaluates you and decides when, if you're going home or you're going back or whatever. And the doctor said, I'm going to ship you home. He said, you're done. So gave me first it kind of disappointing because you almost, you know, you got all your buddies yeah. over there, everything. You don't want to leave. Yeah. Man, you, you know, yeah, you, don't. It's, you don't, I'll tell you. This is Gary Coaches. I couldn't wait to get out back to my, I mean, you're in the hospital. I was in the hospital, a fever of unknown origins, they, they called it. And the guy next to me, I think you die at 108. I'm not sure, but I think so. But the guy next to me was 107, 
and he he was packed in ice. He had ice bags up and down his legs, covered his and the doctor come in and he says, you know, that's your next step because you're at 106. And I really didn't, I mean, I had a fever and that, but I wasn't throwing up or nothing. And it, each day it kept getting lower and lower and lower. And it, it, I got back to normal. But What was the cause? They listed that a fever of unknown origins. They never did find out. They, they wouldn't, the guy said, I said, malaria? I said, no. He says, it's not malaria. I know that. But we've tested your blood in that, and we really don't know. When you're over there for a length of time, everybody wants to come home, but but you're saying you didn't want to leave because you're with your guys. Yeah, you're with your buddies, you know, and they're, they're family. And, I mean, there was there was six or eight of us that were really close that hung around together all the time, you know. And I'm laying in the hospital, and then I heard that they got attacked. They were out on the camera, well, which beach it was, but they got attacked overnight, and they had dinks in, and in, inside, you know, the perimeter and that. And I'm thinking, man, I mean, I, I got to go see these guys, you know. And finally I got out and I got back there to see him. And first thing he said, man, you're like skinny. <laughs> I, I, I had That's no idea. That's the unwanted rate, weight reduction program. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I had no idea I lost that weight. And man, they got, I carried, a, I worked with the machine gun guy. I carried all the ammo for the machine gun guy. His name was Snuffy. And Snuffy said, man, they called me Sugar Bear over there. Because I had a big, thick beard, and when I made my coffee, I always put three or four packs of sugar in it, and I couldn't take it. The sugar bear, what's the matter with you? He said, man, we're going to blow you over. But boy, I was happy to get back. Just to see get all, back with the guys. Just to get right? back to see with them guys. He was in the hospital, and you're secure, but you kind of, I kind of had a, a lonely feeling, you know. You kind of miss them guys, you know. You're talking to a guy next year, maybe that you don't know, or the doctors come in, which are they are very nice people and informing, but you miss your buddies, you know. Uh, they are family. Yeah, they yeah. Are family. This is Earl Fatlin. You were wounded. Mm -hmm. When? It, what were the circumstances? Uh, we were in Cambodia on that Cambodian invasion, and we had got dropped off. Apparently, they got their connections wrong because they dropped us off right on top of an underground supply depot, hospital, and an R&R &R center that was being perimetered by NVA soldiers. So we went in. We were we were in the thick of it. That day, just all hell broke. Well, 20-some days in a row, hell broke loose every day. They had B-40s. They had RPGs. They were blowing off uh, Russian 122 mines. There was just so much going on, and all of a sudden, all, all I can remember is there was an explosion behind me, up behind me, and there was me and four of my guys in the squad, and we all got hit with shrapnel. The tree burst an RPG or a B-40 up in the tree up behind us. And that's, I got hit. I thought somebody hit me with a baseball bat. I really did. And then the burning set in. It's a, you know, because it, it's hot, hot metal. metal. And I couldn't figure out what the hell was going on. I kept lurking around like, what the hell? So I finally looked at one of the guys and he said, yeah, he says, you're, you're, you're wounded. And I said, yeah, and you're wounded. And there was four of us got shrapnel from it. They gave me a shot of morphine, which it wasn't too bad. And we didn't get medevac that day. We couldn't, they, they couldn't bring any hot choppers in to medevac us. 
So they said, you guys are going to have to spend the night out here. So we did, which we, it was no big deal because we'd already lost. I think we went in with 115 guys. We're already down to 70-some guys already out of the company. KIA and wounded in action. So basically, we stayed out there that night with the rest of the company, and, and we continued with the battle. And then finally, the next afternoon, they finally could get choppers in to take us out, so they took us out. And then I think they, the day after that, I think they sent another company in to rescue the rest, to get rest of our guys out of there. You still have some shrapnel in you. I still have a piece of shrapnel in me, yeah. yeah. Now, the only bad thing about it is I really don't have any problem with it. <clears throat> I can never get an MRI. You can, can't you? You don't have any metal in you. Well, it's funny because I had an MRI last year, and they were halfway through, and she stops. She says, you've got metal in you. Oh, okay. I says, where? You know, she says, somewhere in your midsection. Okay. You've got metal. Yeah. I said, I can't have metal. Yeah. I says, uh, you know, and she says, well, trust me. So she had to call the doctor, and they, he looked at it, and he said, well, it's small. Let's go ahead and try it. So I got through it all right. Okay. But uh, so I've got a piece of metal in there somewhere. Yeah, I, I didn't got a know piece, it. I got a piece. It looks like on X-rays. It looks like it's about that long, and it almost looks like a cylinder shape. You know, like a, a round cylinder shape. Um, but it's been in there ever since, and it's never worked its way out. It doesn't bother me. I mean, other than the fact that I just had two surgeries on my shoulders, and they have to do exploratory. They can't. They can't really give you an MRI to say we, we can do this or we can do that. So. But you were in the field mm-hmm. for sometimes two weeks at a time. 17 days. 17 days. Yeah. And give us, walk through what that was like. You really didn't sleep much. No. And did you have proper rations? We got rationed every three days. The, the choppers would bring out food and water. Um, funny story, oh. the first few missions we were on, did you guys get to experience eating sea rations from World War II? We ate sea rations from World War II. In the, they're in they're the very box. well preserved, in, aren't they? Oh, in the box kits? Uh, we're talking the 60s yeah. or 70, and we're not talking 80-year-old sea rations. Yeah. We're talking yeah. Know, 25, 30-year-old yeah. stuff. Yeah. But um, in the morning, basically, you, you, when, you, when you got up, you, uh, you made your coffee. You didn't eat much in the jungle. If you got sent out, the chopper came out, and it would bring out 12 meals per person. That was for three days. Most of the guys took three meals. You'd pick through and pick out the stuff you wanted and send the rest back. The big thing was water. You carried 12 quarts of water with you at all times because after three days, you're out of water. So you, you ate a little breakfast and then you went on your patrol. You, went, you took off and went where you were gonna go for the day. It was always needles and pins. You didn't know from minute to minute what you were gonna run into. We worked mostly in an area where it was mostly NVA soldiers. We didn't have the Viet Cong or the, the guerrillas that they called it, we worked basically against NVA soldiers. And they had company size outfits just like we did. They had uniforms, they had everything just like we did. You would break for lunch a little bit, not too long. And then at nighttime, at about four o'clock, 4.30, you'd set up bivouac um, if you didn't run into anybody during the daytime. And then you'd have chow and then you'd try to write a letter if you could set up your position for the night, put your put your uh, trip flares out, and um, put your claymore mines out, and then everybody designated who was going to get up during the night to do it, what time at what watch for OP. And that's the kind of way it went uh, every day um, and until you ran into NVA, and then it was firefights, sometimes all day long. And then other times there's nothing going on at all. You're just moving. You're, you're moving. Walk, yeah. yeah, you're moving through the jungle. You're moving. Yeah. 
It's a lot of work. You've got 70 pounds on your back at all times. Part of that is water. Oh yeah, 12 quarts of water, three, three meals, three or four meals. You got 440 rounds of ammunition. That's what you carry for your M16. You got your M16, you carry two baseball grenades. Everybody carried one or two sticks of C4 because that's how we cooked. We cooked our food with C4 plastic explosives. Um, toothbrush, maybe some writing material. Like Danny said, everybody smokes, so everybody's got three or four packages of cigarettes or a carton of cigarettes. Some guys carried, like Gary carried ammo for the 60. Some of us carried ammo for the thump gun, the 60s, extra Claymore mines. Some people carried batteries for the RTO. You always had... So you're walking with a load. 70 uh, pounds, usually 70, 70 pounds. 75 pounds? Yeah, exactly weighed 100 pounds. Yeah. Because I carried a radio at one time. You carried, yeah, you were RTO for a while? Yeah. Oh, the radio and, and weighed eight. extra batteries. And your batteries. Radio was, I believe, was 18 pounds or 19 pounds, and then your batteries are two or three pounds a piece. So you carried 70 pounds plus all the time. I don't know about you guys. I think I weighed 145 pounds when I was over there. I think that's about what I weighed, 145, 150 pounds. I weighed 160. Pounds. You did? Well, oh, you're a big, you're a big guy. Well, I was 6'2". You know? Yeah, but nobody <laughs> ate. Nobody, nobody ate. You didn't eat. If you got a beer ration, this is kind of funny, because sometimes the choppers would bring out beer and you got a beer ration. Well, the only time you could drink beer was in the morning because it was the only time it was cold. So if you're going to drink your beer, you had a beer in the morning for breakfast. And I right away. Huh? Don't. They, they used to come around, you want beer or pop? Yeah. So I, mean, yeah. I said, hey, I'll have beer, you know? Yeah. Oh, it makes you sleepy. That beer's 99 degrees, you know? <laughs> <laughs> After that, I want orange pop. That's yeah. the only thing that you could drink that was halfway yeah. decent. Yeah. You were saying earlier that uh, not only did you have your eyes out and ears ready for NVA and mm -hmm. Viet Cong or whatever, but they were creatures in the jungle. Oh, yeah. And you had elephants. Tigers, water buffalo. What they tell us when we got there, there was 106 different kind of snakes, and the guy said 105 of them are poisonous, and the other one's just big enough to eat you. <laughs> so you don't mess with the snakes. And I saw a king cobra. I've seen uh, the big pythons or whatever they were, about 16, 17 foot long. Rock apes. There was a. a All right. What what is a rock ape? The way they explained it to me, it was a type of chimpanzee that they had over there that wasn't necessarily chimpanzee but it was the same size or bigger and they were in colonies and the first time we ran across them and they get very agitated they don't like human beings and, and they got agitated and I said to the guy I said why did why are they call it a rocket he says you're about to find out and they pick up rocks and sticks and they, I said, it looked like Nolan Ryan throwing a 103 fastball at you with a rock. And you better duck because if you get hit with one, it's going to damage. It's going to cause damage. But Sounds like they had some anger management issues. Yes, they did. And we tried to stay away from them because they would get very agitated and they'd get loud. And that it was a trigger for anybody that if you had NVA off at the distance, if they heard that kind of noise going on, they would know you're there. You were stalked yeah. at one point by a tiger. Yes. Yes, on a night ambush. We'd set up a Claymore mine ambush on the Ho Chi Minh Trail in Cambodia. And at about 9 or 10 o'clock that night, maybe a little bit later, whoever was doing OP started nudging everybody and said, we got company, which means there's somebody out there. And you, you hear the noise first. You hear stick twigs breaking or whatever. It, it kind of it goes around you. And at first you're thinking, oh, it's not they don't know we're here. We were thinking it was NVA soldiers. 
they don't know we're here, they're going by us. And then pretty soon you heard it behind you, and then you heard it around the other side, and you're thinking to yourself, okay, we're surrounded, we're done, we're in, we're in big trouble here. And then it moved again, and it was around in front of us again, and then all of a sudden we could hear, if you've ever heard a, a tiger, they have that gurgling, growling kind of noise. And then it was like, oh shit, maybe we've been better off with NV instead of a tiger. Um, so it circled us a couple of times, and we're, of course, we can't shoot it, and we're trying to shoo a tiger away, so we're all going, shoo, shoo, get out of here, you know? And uh, finally the thing leaves. And then the next morning we went out and we found the spore prints in the, in the dirt out there. Every night was an adventure. Night times were the worst. I mean, night times you didn't know if somebody was going to come walking in on you. You'd set up your, your trip flares at nighttime. You probably had this happen. Wild pigs come running through, hit the trip flares, or, or a deer. Something pops your trip flare right off the mat. Right off the mat, you're thinking it's envy, you know, MDA coming in. And some nights it's just animals catching your your trip wires are going on. Are you constantly <clears throat> considering the calendar? I've done this many days. And I want to get the hell out of here. Yes. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. Although, as yeah. as you're saying, you you don't want to leave yeah. your mates. Right. You yeah. want to be there for them. Yeah. Yeah. At the end, uh, there's a short timers calendar. Eating a wake up, and it's usually a picture of something, a, a a girl or something. You had one of them, and it was a short timers calendar, and you you painted a little section every day that you were getting ready to go home. Mm -hmm. So on the last day was your last painting. Or if you if you was in the back in the rear, you'd see some guy walking around with a stick about that long. Yeah. I didn't figure it out for us. Why? What, why would you have a stick? You don't even touch the ground. He says it's a short timer stick. <laughs> oh, that's never heard of that. Yeah. Short stick. Yeah. Well, let me come back to uh, why do you think the burdens that so many guys got drafted from small town America? Why did small town America bear a disproportionate number of the call to go to Vietnam and therefore wounded in action, killed in action? Five guys from your high school. Plus, you were wounded, and I think you mentioned a couple other guys from... Jordy was wounded. Yeah. And, uh, there's a lot of guys that... Uh, I don't know why it's... I don't know if it's disproportionate or not. One thing about it, small towns, we don't argue. We go. You know, when you get drafted, you go, see that brass plaque behind you? Yeah. Honor World War II. World War II. Look at that list. There's four of them got stars behind them. They didn't make it. How did this community handle the deaths of five people from the high school over a period of time? But it was a fairly small window of time. You lose five guys. And you told me before, you know, you knew those guys. You played ball with them. Oh, yeah. We, we knew them all. I don't know. It's a sad, sad, sad thing out there. Uh, Bobby Wright, uh, I, don't, I don't know. It tears their families up. That's what you hate to see. Uh, Mickey Finn, when he died, I tell you, his mother, uh, Mert, and the dad's name was, he was Yucker Finn, all I ever knew him by. I don't even know what his real name was. But it just tore that family right apart. I mean, unbelievable. I don't know, life, I hate to say sound callous, but life went on, you know, and uh, it, everybody was sad, everybody went to the wakes, went to the funerals. Uh, that's one thing about a small town. There's, they all come together for that kind of stuff. But, uh, 
just moved on. Yeah. You did whatever you had to do. Being from small town America, when you came home, you didn't have the same disdain aimed at you uh, that a lot of other people did in the bigger cities. When they come into O'Hare, yeah, they're no. catching grief. You didn't have that. No, no. What did you have? What, what, what happened? What did you have? You had your friends. That's, yeah. I mean, you come home, everybody was, you might have a party or something. Like, Let's go drink some beer and you have a big party and all your friends would come around and the next day you say, hey, you going to work, get a job yet? Yeah. <laughs> just got home two days ago. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it, it was just, after a couple of days, life was back to normal. I think, I mean, I, that, what I can remember, that's pretty much the yeah. way it was. You Have know? you been able to put away those bad things that may still rest in your memory? You, here's what I'm going to say. You put them away, but you can remember them. If you want to, you can remember them, especially if it's guys sitting talking amongst ourselves and, and we talk about these kind of moments that we had. Other than that, most of the time it's just I go about my life. I got grandkids like you do, and we go to sports and, you know, the whole works in our life. You know, no we, need to dwell on the past. No, no need to dwell on it. It People doesn't. People ask me that all the time. Yeah. Why don't you talk more about Vietnam? Tell us what it was like over this. I'm no hero. I just no. went over it like the rest of the guys, and I was lucky to come home unhurt. You know, and so it, I don't I just don't feel comfortable talking about it unless you're with a group of guys that's been over there and, and know what it's like. I just, like I said, I don't want to be a hero. I'm not a hero. I just went over there because they told me I had to go. And then when I come back, but there's some things that, like you say, you put in the back of your mind, but you never forget them, you know, because, I mean, I went without food for seven days, but, I mean, we lived on a beef bullion cube. But we had a, you remember the beef bullion cubes? We'd cut them in half, and it was, it was raining so hard, they couldn't get us any food. Cut that beef bullion cube in half, and me and Snuffy, my gunner, we'd, we'd put it in one, in your uh, canteen cup. And that's what we, we, he drank half, and I drank half in the morning. And at night, he drank half, and I drank half in the morning. For seven days before no, we got No food. wonder you were so skinny. <laughs> yeah, that had to do some of it, too. Yeah. I mean, literally no food. Why, why do you guys think there is today a much more charitable attitude toward the veterans who served? I mean, you're praised. Sometimes you're called heroes when you may think you don't deserve that. Nonetheless, there's a different attitude today than there was when the vast body of yeah, Vietnamese, I, Vietnam vets came home. Why is that? That's a good question. Yeah, yeah I, really good you, go, you go back to 68, the riots in Chicago, all, all that stuff. This took place all over the country and everything. There was such an anti-war, not so much anti-soldier, but because we were soldiers, we were part of the, you know, we caught some of the anti, not us personally, but the military as a whole, you know, was really looked upon with quite a bit of disdain. People didn't like them. I don't know what changed it. I don't know where it changed, but all of a sudden, I think 9-11 uh, has got to do with it. 9-11-2001, somebody woke up and realized, hey, we can be attacked. To me, that was the big turnaround to what people's view of the military is. Yeah. More, more people realize that I today. think so, yeah. Think? They more re realize what, you, what you've done. And when they, there's more information put out on how people live, and it's just, a, I mean, wow, they went through that. They're talking about, you went through that? Have you did that? Have you been sufficiently thanked for your service? Yeah, I believe I have. I mean, my friends all thanked me. And other than that, that's, 
That's all you need. That's all I need. I've been to basketball games here at the high school, and they talk about the veterans and the, all the veterans. Please stand up, you know, and you, you stand up and they applaud for you. That's yeah, the football games and stuff. Yeah, that means that means a lot. That means a lot a lot to me when you when you stand up. You, your friends, your neighbors are applauding you. Right. You're recognized. Right. I don't yeah. need no newspaper reporter or some guy, you know, put me on TV or something. My friends are right. That's that's what it meant to me. Yeah. Yeah. Let me ask you about Danny. The you were on the 97th, 97th flight, yep. and you made it a point to get to the wall. Oh, yeah. And to find those five names from the high school here. Found all five. All five. And yep. what did you do? Well, it, it, uh, it, it's gut-wrenching. I'll tell you, when you think, and you knew all five, when you see this, it, okay, you see a memorial, you know, and it's got all these names and whatever. That's one thing. But when you look and you see that name of a kid you went to basic training with, you played baseball with, you played basketball with, I mean, the, it, it just, you sit there, you're, you almost cry. You almost cry. It didn't, but it almost did. It just, it, it hits you. when you think, I got a life they never got. They never got to do it. Bobby Wright didn't get to get married and have kids. And he had a fiance right here in town. She married another guy and had kids and stuff. And, you know, life went on after time. You, you think, my God, man, all the, the lives, and there's 58,000 names there. And I'm, I just know, I know six because of the five from Gardner. And then I had a first cousin, uh, my mother's sister, my aunt Gladys from California. Her boy got killed over there. It's a bit it was over 11 months in. He had one month to go and didn't make it. It's a bit overwhelming. Oh, on the honor flight, they have people there that volunteer at that wall, and they'll do your, uh, they'll do your, your etching for it. Oh, I tell you what, they did a great job. But you stood there, and it just—I I tell you—it's gut wrenching. It just tore five families. It just tore them up. It was never the same for them. Never. When you came home that night and you walk through midway you and ed are walking together everybody's cheering and stuff oh yeah was that therapeutic for you yeah you got a welcome home from your friends and all that but it just it just puts a patriotic surge through you like you you can't believe this is all your family your friends and all this and of course we had four i think four world war ii guys and six korean guys on our trip and uh Boy, I'll tell you what, the tears were flowing and uh, all the families and everything, and they all got their decorations, you know, and their signs and all this stuff. And the only thing I missed, no music. Because we were one of the second one after COVID, and they still didn't have permission to have the band there or nothing like that. And they didn't have as many sailors and soldiers like they did. The music would have made it better, but it was still great. When I walked through there, and there's my family, and they limited us to four. I got 10 grandkids, you know. <laughs> but my two boys were there, my wife was there, and my one grandson, he says, Grandpa, I'm coming, I don't care what they say. I always said, every grade school should have to go up there and experience this when they come home. Uh, you get all these letters from the grade school kids, and all their teacher says, okay, we're gonna write letters to Mr. Fallon here today, and they write nice letters, and the kids are really great about it, and I've got a stack of them back, I got a bag like that. And I went through every one of them. It took four nights to do it. 
But uh, this, these kids should be there and see that. You know, they think of soldiers, they see the guys in uniforms carrying guns and all that, and then here's this bunch of old men coming down the line. Well, we were, how does it say, we were soldiers once, you know, and uh, we were. And uh, I think every one of us is damn proud of what we did. I was just going to say, I know all you guys are really proud of your service. Oh, yeah, you bet. Absolutely. And like you said, these kids, these kids want to know. They want a lot of these kids. They're not being taught this stuff in in school. And and you start talking about Vietnam, and it's like a deer with their eyes in a headlight. You know, they're like, "What? You did what? What do you want them um, to know? Yeah. What what do you want them to know about your service? just to, to understand what people go through so that they can be free and have the right to speech and the second amendment and the third and the fourth and the fifth amendments they need to know they need to know why they're free and yeah. the, and who gives them their freedom um not just the army or the air force or the marines or whatever it's the soldiers that serve it's that's what they like need they to say freedom ain't free no it's not free was you here four or five years ago, a bunch of veterans went. Were you in it? Went to the grade school? Yeah. I yeah. Was, I was there. Shorty was there. And, yeah. and all, each class come out and line the walls or line the, the hallway. And we walked one end and back, and them kids were cheering and clapping. Yeah. Oh, God, that that really, that really, uh, that really made me feel good. I already had my funeral made up, you know, and I asked. I told the direct, uh, funeral director, said, there's one thing I want you to play taps. To play taps at my funeral. Yeah. And I want a flag on my coffin. Yeah. I don't care if you bury me in a wooden box, but I want a flag. <laughs> <laughs> Let me just say that there are living years ahead for you. You don't have to worry just now about putting a flag on the casket. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. hope so. a lot. <laughs> Hey, thanks, you guys. This uh, is uh, I really appreciate you spending some time. Wow, this, yeah, this is great for me. I, I mean, I, I could do this all day long. You know? <laughs> I don't need a big crowd of people out there, but I'd like to talk to these guys, hear right. what they did and what I did. You know. Well, that's it part was, of the, the deal. When you get together, that's what the trip is about, yeah. when you, you share experience. I tell everybody, every veteran I ever run into, if you haven't been on an honor flight, go. We hope you found today's Honor Thank Inspire episode to be moving and meaningful. If you did, please consider sharing this podcast and make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The impact Honor Flight Chicago has on the lives of our veterans and their families is made possible by the generosity of our donors. To support our mission, to find our veteran application, to volunteer, or simply for more information, please visit us at honorflightchicago.org.